Hello, hello, this is Alex Burkett, and you are listening to The Long Game Podcast. In this episode, I'm chatting with Mark Killens. As the chief marketing officer of event-led engagement platform, AirMeet, Mark leads a global team of marketing professionals who are working to advance event-led growth. Prior to joining AirMeet, he served as VP of content and community at Drift and oversaw Drift Insider, a community of 50,000 plus members. He also previously held the title of VP of Marketing at HubSpot and went on to build HubSpot Academy from the ground up, which led the company to surpass 600 million US dollars in revenue. In this conversation, we're going to chat about event-led growth, how we could be doing event-led growth better on a meta level. We also talk about lessons learned moving into a CMO role, how to persuade stakeholders of your initiative and how to align with marketing and business goals, and much, much more. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Mark Killens. My understanding, or at least like from from my standpoint, it still seems like customer education as a whole is like underinvested in. Like you can think of the examples, or I can with HubSpot and Drift and Optimizely, but like I feel like it's not. Outside of like blog posts and like maybe knowledge bases, like I don't see the robustness that like you put into the academy. Like, are you seeing that as mm. being more of a saturated channel or like what is the state of customer education nowadays? No, you're right. It's definitely not invested in enough because it's like, it's like who owns it? It's like, well, it's CS, it's the, the CMO, it's, you know, it's either typically one of those two people. Sometimes it's the product team, which is crazy in my opinion. Um, I think it, it's all aligned to what are people used to doing, their their comfort and skill level, and how do you measure it? Um, so when you think about those two things you unpack, like, well, how do you measure customer education? There's not a lot of like knowledge about that. Uh, it's, it's actually very easily me- measured uh, if you just spend some time and, and actually do it. Uh, and then it's like, the first thing though, it's like, how do you, how do you actually do it? The skill sets and, and the knowledge required and there's not many marketers that know how to do it. Um, there's not many CS people that know how to do it because you need to have a blend of uh, content marketers. You need to have a blend of people that know how to create content in a structured way to help someone get to an outcome. You need video and design to do it well. Uh, and you need distribution. So... You need a lot of things. And then when you think about it, the, a traditional marketing team can do at least typically three out of those four things well. Like a good marketing team can do three out of those four things well. What they really don't usually ever have in the marketing team, which I think all marketing teams should have now, is the education in terms of like structured uh, education creation and design, which is you know typically called uh, instructor, you know, instructional design or instructor-led training or curriculum design or whatever you want to call it. But that's the skill gap that's lacking typically in a marketing team. And sometimes it's found in a CS team. Um, but, you know, to, to do education well, you need to uh, have a have a holistic view of, not a holistic view, you need to have a philosophy and a belief that we're going to invest in education, both pre and post sale. And that's going to be bettering the company's enterprise value, and it's going to better the customer value. If you philosophically don't believe that, especially at the executive level, you will, you will not, you will probably underinvest slash not 
do it well enough and you won't get those returns and you'll be like, yeah, this doesn't work. We're going to try something else. I almost think that that instructional design, was that the word that you used for it? Instructional design. Yep. ID. I almost think that could be much like that could be very useful for, you know, traditional content teams who are focusing on acquiring users as well. But it seems like that would be like the one differentiator between because all the other skills that you mentioned, I'm like, oh, like distribution and like being able to create content, the operational side. It feels like all of those things are like natural for content teams who are focusing on acquiring customers. But also that instructional design piece, I feel like is is maybe lacking in a lot of that content. But like, how do you look at the differences in like the skills and like the teams and the resources needed to facilitate customer marketing and customer education content versus your traditional, you know, maybe blogging, social, like external facing, um, you know, generating net new customers type of stuff? Yeah. So at HubSpot, it was, it was less integrated. It was all kind of like separate teams. It started out in CS and then marketing. And then we were like, no, no, this all has to be in the marketing team. But then even then it still was so big at that point that there was a lot of like teams that were separated out that really should have been more integrated together. Meaning there was like three or four different content teams at HubSpot when mm-hmm. it should have just been, in my opinion, one content team. Um, at Drift, that's what we did. At Drift, I was responsible for the overall content team, the education team, the events team, the brand team, slash the creative agency like that we had inside the company. So like we unified all the things that we were using to create demand either pre or post sale mm-hmm. and to create value for our community and our customers pre or post sale. Then there was the revenue marketing team that would take these these assets, these um, uh, these things that are in our portfolio of demand creation, and then use them to capture the demand, capture demand, you know, in many many different ways. Um, and that was a very very like symbiotic close relationship between those two teams. And then there was like product marketing, that was about how do we bring a product to market and do so in a way that is going to really impact um, how we're executing our sales process and, you know, the, the not just new sales process, but new business sales process, but also the upsell, cross-sell, you know, expansion side of the thing as well. Um, but like product marketing was not really focused too, too much on you know, heavy content creation. That was all centralized underneath the content team. And that's, that is not a common structure. Like, but, but that's what I think a modern marketing team should look like where you have three pillars, right? To start with over time, if you get really, really big, you might have like five pillars. You might have like a, a comms team that does external and internal comms. Uh, we had that adrift too. So there's four teams instead of just three. Um, you might even, you know, start to bifurcate out a little bit more of your, your, your brand and content and events into maybe two groups uh, so there's like maybe five pillars. If your team is like, you know, a hundred, 150 people plus, it's going to be a really big marketing team though, to do that. Even then, like depending on the quality of the leader who leads each of these teams, um, you might not have to do that. Right. Like, you know, I think the ideal situation for a CMO these days would to have like four, maybe five direct reports. That would be the ideal situation because the CMO should be selling uh, just as much as the CRO or the head of sales, in my opinion. So like I'm, I'm, you know, my goal is to bring in like personally five, at least five to 10 opportunities every month for hmm. Aramid. Like that, like that's my baseline. You know, like last week I brought in two, two deals, two real opportunities. Um, 
So, you know, when you think about the duty of a CMO early days versus later stages, all of these questions that you know you ask, you're asking now, and other people have asked me, it's highly, highly dependent on stage of business. And um, also just which different go-to-market pillars are you using? Are you content led, like how content led are you versus event led versus product led versus sales led versus um, you know, maybe uh, you're, you're really actually more partner led. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of nuance here, I guess. I feel like that's a rare thing. What you just said, uh, a CMO who is actively kind of goaling themselves on like bringing in new opportunities and deals like that, that feels rare to me. It probably is. I mean, that's, I'm just, again, I'm a natural salesperson. I've never had a quota, but like, I love selling. I love, uh, I love helping people understand how to do something better and teaching them how to do something better. And if that means they might want to use a different solution, tool, piece of software, physical thing to do said thing better, then I'm going to sell them to go use that thing. <laughs> nice. Well, I love that view. What What are some of the other lessons that you've had to learn into this CMO role, you know, coming from like VP of content and community and customer education and all those various parts of marketing into an all-encompassing role uh, like the CMO here? Yeah. I mean, a great CMO is unite the company. They unite the company and they unite the C-suite. Um, and I actually have a whole presentation about this, so I'm happy to, to share that with people. But um, just message me on LinkedIn if you want to get that. But the, 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 the great CMOs you know, do many things. If you boil it down to three things, they prioritize, they position, um, and they, they, package, uh, they, they package things. Right. And so like when you think about that, like you could say almost like two out of those three things are very sales oriented, right? Like they are, like they because they should be not marketing, not just marketing things and, and shaping the market. Um, but they should be helping the business grow through yes, shaping the market, but also capturing and growing the markets. That the business, you know, the, the business is or should be, you know, participating in, if mm-hmm. you will, um, and that means that they need to really prioritize, help the whole C-suite prioritize the decisions that the CEO is making on who we're going after, and in what segments, accounts, geos we're going after these these businesses and these people at these businesses, and helping the business align around that prioritization and execute it. Then it's like, all right, how do you position the business, the products, all of it to the people we just decided that we're going to you know, go after? And then how do you package what we actually sell in a way that matches that positioning to then those people and those businesses? So the CMO has to unite the whole business around those three things. Um, that's what great CMOs do. Uh, VPs of marketing focus typically on positioning and maybe a little prioritization, but they're like, they're not doing all three of those things. They're not doing all three of those things in a a way that is, you know, uniting the business and keeping the business hyper-focused on um, the mission ahead for the next one year and then two years and then three years. Right. And and they're almost acting as the, the uh, kind of broker 
between all these C-suite executives and the CEO, right? And they have to be really good at negotiation, at salesmanship skills, because they're going to get asked, the CMOs these days get asked to do a lot of things. It's commonly talked about, right? So what is that? What is a CMO's greatest strength? Being able to focus, um, which goes back to that first thing, prioritization. Um, and if you can, it, you know, if you can navigate that, um, you'll be in a position to win. As so, as long as you have the most important thing, the the, the P that I did not say is people. Right, the mm-hmm. greatest CMOs have a great ability to attract and hire the best people and build amazing teams. Prioritization. That's that's something I want to touch on because now uh sitting from the standpoint of CMO, where you've got like this holistic vision, um, you're dealing with prioritization, not just among like different marketing initiatives, but like sort of like things that encompass the whole company and like your go-to-market. Uh, but you also in the past, I'm guessing with the HubSpot Academy, had to do quite a bit of convincing. Um, content teams struggle with this all the time. It's like people lament, oh, like content's super important, but like our headcount is decreasing. We're not getting the budget we need. We can't seem to convince people that it's more important than paid acquisition. So like, what do you wish (laughs) maybe you knew back then or like things that you had learned about like positioning HubSpot Academy or or different initiatives that may, you know, maybe like you had to like model out what the growth opportunity was, but it wasn't apparent. Like it wasn't something that was already like, hey, we can put a dollar in, get $2 out. Like, how do you, how would you advise people who are like pitching a CMO or like trying to get their initiatives um, up in front and salient and invested in um, now that you've kind of seen both sides of that equation? Well, yeah, you got, you got to understand what the business is trying to achieve in the short and long term, right? So like, you know, with HubSpot, it's like, hey, we need to fix retention and we need to get our customers using more of our product and, and therefore fix retention. Great. I think we could do that through something like HubSpot Academy. And sure enough, that worked. And then we had, hey, there's another thing we could do. There's a big opportunity to keep growing HubSpot at a very fast clip. Let's use this pre-sales to increase the acquisition of new people coming in and, and actually educate them more upfront so that their ACVs go up, you know, by 10%. That actually happened. Um, so like it. To me, it's about like, you have to understand, this is what the great CMOs do as well. You have to understand how the business is is making money today and retaining that money, but then how they're trying to do that in the future. Mm. Um, And so a marketer, you know, as long as the business is pretty transparent or you could ask your leader or even the CEO, right? So I think some of this is cultural. Some of this, by the way, just, you know, if the culture does not allow for this, I would say, and you're trying to do this, just leave, find a new company. Um, mm-hmm. I know that's easier said than done, but that's my my take. Um, but if the culture if the culture does allow for this, and you can get that information, you have that access and visibility, then it's about working with other people. Number one, to validate what you're thinking and trying to do in the context of what the business needs. Because at the ultimate day, the employee and everyone at the business should realize you are here to serve two things: the business, and then the thing I was going to add to this is the customer. So if you can. If you can find a way to explain what you're trying to propose and do um, from a customer point of view and a business point of view, and they add up together, I, I don't see why th- that shouldn't be given any type of serious consideration because that's a win-win for everyone. Um, and if you can do that with some limited or even you know, more than limited evidence, aka you trying this thing out, which is what we did with the Academy, we tried it out for a year and a half through experimentation. 
um, to work nights and weekends. You know, if you really believe in it, you're gonna have to work more than your normal day job. Like it is what it is. Like just mm-hmm. that's the state of the union, you know, like um, go do it, go try it out. And if you can tell the, the people in the business, Hey, we're doing this. The customers are loving this. You know, it's, it's kind of irrefutable then it's like, well, the customers are saying they like this. I mean, don't you think we should invest if you look at all these other reasons why? And, and then, yeah, if you have a really solid case and you still don't make any headway, you know, you have to consider yourself like, Hey, should we, should I still be at this company? Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. There's probably other companies out there that would value that type of thing. I always said that like my background is, is well content of course, but then experimentation, like I ran experimentation teams and worked on kind of AB testing. And that's one thing that people talk about a lot is like how to build a culture of experimentation. But if you come into a company that's of a certain size, like you can kind of build it at the start if it's like scaling up, but if there are a thousand employees and there's no culture of experimentation, it's going to be a hard rock to push up that hill, right? You've got to have somebody who uh, yeah. believes in it. You've got to have people who like kind of support the efforts. Otherwise, it's going to be a whole lot of work to get that first properly run A-B test out the door, let alone the whole program. So it's like, you got to kind of weigh the pros and cons of sitting there and trying that Sisyphean task of convincing everybody versus just going to one of the thousands of companies that actually already believe in it. Yeah, you got to back channel the company so much. You can't just look at Glassdoor and these review sites. You got to talk to people at the company. So I. The people that I'm trying to bring onto the marketing team now, I actively are giving them people to talk to to learn about the team. Like I, I also, that's a whole other thing. I think the way we hire today is so, for the most part, so screwed up. Like hmm. it's so screwed up. Um, and I think it's because a lot of people are seeking a lazy solution to hiring people. It's like, yeah. well, I'm going to post a job and people come inbound and, you know, we'll sift through those people. And like, no, no, like the, the best hiring happens when you're not passive, you're active and on the offense, looking for people all the time, number one. And number two, you're, um, if you don't have access or you don't have the network, you're leaning into someone either inside or even outside the company that does, and that's going to help you find that person. Um, and, and you, and that, that person, you're going to most likely have to, in some cases, will have to sell them. So my, the great marketers, the great CMOs, the great salespeople, sell them on, on not just the company and you and maybe your team, but sell them on the next three years. You have to sell them on the next three or five years. Because if you don't sell them on that, then you risk them not like being not understanding like why you're asking them to potentially join the company, but also you're risking the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm looking to jump to this company for one to two years and I'm just trying to get a pay increase and I want to do the job and check in, check out fine. You're trying to understand through selling them, how excited are they and how far are they leaning in through the interview process? I mean, some mm-hmm. of the best interview process, you know, processes happen, not just within, you know, two or three weeks, they take three or four months, but like you have to know as a CMO, the intentionality of like, I'm trying to grow my marketing team like this in the next six to 12 months. So if you're trying to hire someone six months from now, I would argue you should start, you should start recruiting that person right now, six months from now. And that's what I've done with two people. I'm actually bringing on two people in the next couple of months who I've been like interviewing literally for the last four months, like talking mm. to yeah, it's funny. I, I think our our mutual connection, Dave Gerhardt, just posted something on this on LinkedIn about how every executive, every CMO he knows has this like 
either conscious or unconscious Rolodex of pe- like their dream list of people they want to work with. And they carry that with them through their career. Right. So that's something we've started consciously doing. It's like, we may not be in the place to hire this person now. Like maybe it's a leadership hire in the future. Like maybe it's just not the right time, but like we keep a list of these people and we keep them in our universe, so to speak. You know, we keep them warm. We, we bring them on the podcast potentially, uh, but we have this list of dream people that we want to hire. And we're like slowly kind of seeding that sales process in. So when it comes time to jump, it's like, Hey, we've got this open position. Here's the vision for the role. And like, we've already made like the relationship, um, at least the starting point of that relationship happen. Yep. You have to. So what's like, um, I mean, you've hired a bunch at this point, like, I guess it's difficult to do this like role agnostic, but like, what are some defining traits of somebody that you think is going to be like, you know, a high, uh, 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 potential candidate, um, for a marketing role, like even outside of, you know, if they have specific skills, I feel like that's clear, like that's priced in, but what are the things that aren't priced into roles or to people like trying to fill roles at this point? For me, it comes down to character. Mm-hmm. I look to, to hire for character and a lot less skill. Yeah, skill is definitely important. So I'm not going to like just completely discount skill. Character is the ultimate thing uh, that I look for. So I ask questions like, hey, describe to me one of your personal values or principles. What is it? Who taught it to you? And how do you live your life by it? It's one of my go-to interview questions. And I, like, I would say the vast majority of people say, I've never heard this question. What? Like, and they they some people get tripped up. And I know based off that question, that question for me weeds out half the people almost instantaneously. It's just how, fascinating. How, how would you answer that question? How how would I answer like what's one of my personal values? Yeah. Oh, I mean, I have a set of personal values. I can name all eight of them off the top of my head. So I, I'll give you one. One of mine is never settle. Um, I don't believe in ever settling on anything. Everything can always be better. You can always try until you die to 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 improve to help someone else improve. Um, I have countless examples of this, uh, who taught this to me. I'd say my parents both taught this to me. Um, it wasn't one of them. It was both of them. And yeah, there you go. I love that. How do you reconcile that with the, the, the counter case of perfectionism? Like if something can always be better, like a draft of an article, say, for example, like how do you uh, reach the point where, you know, you need to ship, but it still could be better. I mean, you just, everything can always be better. So there's no such thing as perfectionism. Mm. It's it's about Mm -hmm. like. When, when do you feel like time invested is no longer worth it? Right. And like, you've got to move on. Right. So that's, that's more just like, um, you know, it, it's highly dependent on the situation. There's a lot of different mental models you can use to decide when something needs to be shift, shipped. Um, but I, I think that's very, that answer would be very situational given what you're looking to, to ship or create and uh, how much risk is involved in shipping said thing because the blogger mm, I like that. go updated the next day yeah who cares how reversible is this decision basically yeah yeah and if it's like an experiment you run it's like you can just turn the experiment off maybe i mean like if you look at that yeah we're trying to run an experiment with a million people yeah. is it that reversible i don't know yeah so sorry i interrupted so the character uh that question's a beautiful one that i'm gonna use in our interviews what else uh in terms of uh hiring like what 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 signals are good signals in hiring candidates oh yeah yeah i mean some of my other kind of go-to questions would be um uh tell me uh, tell me um how do i put this i always say this in the exact same way so let me just make sure i remember correctly um 
what's what's one skill set that you're lacking right now that you think you really need for this job? Hmm. I like that. And what are you seeking in that answer? Just self-awareness as well as maybe a plan to to compensate and build that skill? Yeah, like self-awareness. Actively working on it. Yeah, yeah. Self-awareness, critically, critical thinking, um, ability to turn that answer into a story, um, the ability to, to understand how curious they might be, um, how they flip that question potentially back on me. Um yeah, most people don't do great with that question either. That's a t- that's definitely a tough question. You know, I mean, again, like you, you that question kind of also dictates to me how prepared are you for this interview. Yeah, totally, and it showcases how how vulnerable they're willing to be with their own kind of weaknesses as well. Like, I know that's something that, like, with our founders at the agency, like, we're very critical—not well, mostly of ourselves, but with each other. Like, we're we're able to have these discussions. And we set up goals for our, our own personal growth and professional growth for each year. And I know like for myself, like you had mentioned sales, it's like, I am the primary salesperson and like off the cuff, I'm pretty good. Like as soon as I get on a call, I've got some natural ability, but I know that like where my weakness is, is organization and building the process that like allows me to scale beyond myself. Right. So all of next year, that's going to be my main focus, but like knowing that and prioritizing that, because I know that's also one of the most impactful things we can do for our future growth, which is like, as a founder, like you've just got to prioritize those regardless of what domain they're in. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you were coming into the CMO role, like what was your biggest weakness that you had to overcome? Like what was the skill that you needed to build? I think one of mine is, is, and I've definitely gotten better at this is patience, patience, mm-hmm. you know, and that's any leader um, who's had success and who's like done these jobs, you know, you have to be patient with people. You, you have to, you know, you have to give them, you have to teach them how to fish. You can't fish for them. So, and that requires patience. But my, basically my line for patience is if it happens once, fine. If it happens twice, interesting. If it happens three times, my patience now is very thin. If it happens more than three times, my patience is almost gone and it's unacceptable. So that's, yeah. and I tell that to my team, like I'm very, you know, it's like, you know, three times. That's, that's when it's a trend for me. When things become trends and they're not good trends, I lose patience very quickly with anyone, other executives with anyone. It sounds like with patience, what you're talking about is giving the giving people the space to make their own mistakes and like trying to learn from them. Not necessarily because I could construe patience in a different way, which is like how long somebody takes to get something accomplished, right? If it's like, you know, like publishing a blog post in two days versus two weeks. For me there, like I'm, I'm like less patient. I'm like very impatient with action and, and I'm pa- I try to be patient with results. So it's like, if you can get something done today and you don't do it, like, why didn't you do that today kind of thing? But I I see the other side, which is like giving people the space without going in and try to save them or being impatient on the first mistake and and not giving people the opportunity to learn from that. So it's like that. It sounds like that's more the direction you're going with with the patience thing is is more on the Mm, mistakes. I would say it applies to both because it's all situational. Like, you know, I don't, you know, some people, you know, one person, for example, you know, will read a blog article in one day, like you said, and then the next time they write an article, it takes them two weeks. However, if one article, you know, has, is trying to achieve this, this objective slash outcome, and the other one has extremely different objective and outcome, then two weeks versus one week could be very, very warranted in terms of mm. how long it takes. So, you know, my patience is more about, you know, and by the way, if, if someone is creating one blog article for the very first time versus someone who's creating one, you know, for the 200th time, it's completely different context, different situation, right? So you can't like, 
my my thing is around um uh d- definitely when i say like you know trends and patience it's more like what's the expectation that that is kind of being set around this this not so much activity or task but the outcome of this activity or task and if if we've talked about it once okay if, if we've talked about it twice or it's happened once or twice interesting if it's happened three times then it's like why is it happening three times when this has already been addressed the expectation has been set so the, this goes into a point where I think a lot of people fail um, or just don't proactively do it enough, which is like giving people feedback um, and being very and setting the expectation feedback in the first place. You know? Yeah. And being I, like, look, if you ask anyone at Aramie, they're going to be like, yeah, Mark uh, will tell it how it is. He'll do it mostly in a very respectful, nice way. Sometimes, you know, I can I can be a little uh, hot-headed and probably can can deliver that in a little bit more nice way. Um, going back to your question on, you know, skill sets, cause again, my, my patience, you know, is right there, but, um, you, you know, I will, I will share this, you know, even in large groups, I'll call anyone out and I expect the same thing from anyone else. Like call me out. Like, I, and I have to realize though, people have different levels of, of tolerance for these things and feelings. And, um, you have to be able to read the room. Like one of my biggest pet peeves is, you know, if you're not on video, then I, I can't help you. 50, 50% of the, of the way that I can help you is diminished. Maybe more than mm-hmm. that. Because so much of what we do as humans is, is nonverbal. So if you're not on video, I don't, I don't know, like, ha- at least half what you're actually feeling or thinking. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, this kind of goes into like, you know, anything, right? When you're, when you're dealing with anyone, the best thing you can do is, is be able to see them. Um, so that's a quick aside because like when you think about like when you're giving feedback, giving feedback requires you to have a feedback loop that's not verbal about the feedback. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when people, if you try to give feedback over the phone or uh, without video, it makes it a lot harder for that person. I've, I found that like back when I was at HubSpot, like I worked remote um, when now everybody's remote. Now, now it's the cool thing. But like back in the day, it was like very few people who were. And there's like escalating layers of this. Like if, if you're just doing audio, like that's kind of the base level, like where you don't see the person's face, you don't see how they react. You don't see if what you said was just like inadvertently offensive or something. You get video, you bridge a lot of that. It's gotten so much better. But then I would notice like when I would go in person to Cambridge or to Dublin, like once every three months or so, like I would meet a bunch of people, I would barely open my laptop and it would be fully kind of networking and like meeting the people that I was working with all the time. And then I would come back down to Austin and the next week or two, like I would hit them up on Slack and it was like a whole different relationship. It was like when we would, when I would ask to collaborate, instead of just getting a no, I have other priorities. It was like, oh yeah, let's jump on a call and like hash this out and see how this could work. It was like, there was this layer of trust that was built by being in person, seeing that the other person was a real person and like seeing their body language and that they're not like a threat to your job. They're just like also trying to do, you know, like what they're trying to do. Like that just added this whole deeper layer, I think. I mean, in-person definitely helps, but I, I will also call like bullshit on in-person stuff pretty quickly because I have a almost 30 person marketing team. I've never met any of them in person. They're all actually based out of India. Oh, wow. uh, so, and it, we're, we're killing it. So, you know, relative in that term, you know, I'm biased of course, but you know, we were able to, you know, launch a whole new product suite uh, you know, update all of our, you know, positioning, messaging, retool the entire way we do marketing, align the, the the executive team who, by the way, I've never met one of them except one person in person. 
all in seven months, all through this type of experience. So in-person helps. Yes. In many, many ways, but like, I think a lot of people use that as a crutch because they either don't take the time or uh, have the, have the work, you know, that take the, take the time to like realize that, yeah, you can do all these things. You just have to do them differently. The way you communicate and build teams when it's really, really just remote first is, is definitely different than doing it when it's either hybrid or just in person. So, yeah. Well, I think your thing there where you said remote first is key. It's like, what's the culture predicated on? Like, how are relationships built? How is persuasion done? And in HubSpot in 2018, like it was a different different beast than maybe it is now, or like our company is fully remote. So it's like, we've met the team, not even all the team, right? Like it's it's been built from a remote first perspective. So that's how the culture is set up. So it's like playing into that. Like, And, and that kind of goes back to what you said, which is like, when you're trying to convince somebody of anything, you have to see like how things are done within that specific context. Like it's not the same company to company. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, I'm, I don't like, I'm a pretty strong uh, opinion, I guess you could say strong belief right now. That can be changed by data if people prove it's wrong. But yeah, I think companies either got to be one or the other. You got to be like in person or remote. And when you're remote, you can get together in person for sure. But you can't be like, hey, you know, our company, you know, lets you do whatever you want. It's two or three days a week or, you know, whatever you want to do because it makes it super hard, hard to lead a team when mm-hmm. you're just like, hey, you can either work from home or you don't have to, you know, you, you don't work from home. And when you're trying to lead a meeting of 40 people and 10 people in the office and 30 people online, like it's, it doesn't feel great. I've done it. It doesn't, it doesn't work well. <laughs> uh, it doesn't feel inclusive uh, for sure. Uh, and you alienating people regardless. Um, so, you know, I, I, I really believe that uh, you have to take a bright line here. And so if you're remote though, you still can have an office. It's an office about getting people and your customers together in person uh, and not working, but collaborating and uh, enjoying each other's company, but not working at a desk. Like that's not the point of when you get together if you're a remote first company. Yeah, I love that. Um, I want to talk a little bit about virtual events. Um, I've got some topics lined up here, but first, just a real quick note on the HubSpot time because we we you know we're talking a little bit about both of us being there. Um, to prep, I always do a bunch of, uh, research. I listen to all the podcasts you've done, not all the podcasts, probably cause you do a ton. Um, but for some people they've done two and I listened to both of those two. Um, something I noticed, this is going to be flattering, but you mentioned that you're a natural salesperson. I noticed, I wrote this down that you're a great speaker. You talk well. And I also noticed this to be true of a lot of HubSpot employees. Like I think a lot of HubSpotters are great presenters and great writers and just great communicators. Mm-hmm. So my question is, is that something that is natural? Is it in the water in Cambridge? Is there just some sort of a selection bias at HubSpot? Or have you proactively cultivated this speaking capability? Like, do you work on your communication skills? Do you work on that salesmanship? Like, what is the proactive component to any of this? Uh, both. And at HubSpot, super fortunate to be part of Toastmasters for like six years. Mm. Toastmasters is an amazing organization and HubSpot, I'm pretty sure they still have a chapter. I'd be shocked if they didn't. And they had multiple chapters around the, around the globe. Um, and Toastmasters teaches you how to be what they call it as a competent communicator. So lots of people, hundreds and hundreds of people, could be thousands of people at HubSpot went through that, went through that program to some level. And that will make you a much better communicator. 
Well, look at that. I had no idea about the Toastmasters program. I just came in and I was like, why is everybody so effective at <laughs> delivering slide decks here? It's, it was a new world for me coming from uh, you know a bunch of nerdy tech people who can't really talk about what they're doing. So, um, all right. So let's talk about virtual events real quick. Um, Airmeet, can you give like a really quick, um, you know, how you differentiate what you do? What 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 is Airmeet? And then we can kind of couch the context there uh, where we talk about virtual events and how marketers can best leverage them. Yeah, sure. I mean, we're a virtual hybrid in-person event platform. So we have this thing called the Event Experience Cloud. So with the Event Experience Cloud, you could put on any type of an event, short online events, large multi-day virtual online event, hybrid event, in-person events, internal team events. We let you put on as many events as you want through the Event Experience Cloud. We only charge you for attendees. Uh, a lot of people charge for registrations, which I think is insane. Like, no, just charge for the value that you deliver, which is putting the attendee at the center of every one of your events. And that's what we believe at Airmy. We've designed our products, we have four products within this, within this cloud to help you put the attendee in the center. So that means you can build that relationship, that trust, um, add that value to each person who attends your different events, as well as you can through the help of the Airmy team. And the other thing that makes us really unique is we have this thing called the Airmeet Support Lounge, and it's actually powered on the Airmeet platform where, where you could get support by yeah emailing us if you want. You could chat in, but you can join this link. You go to our website right now and find it, and you're dropped into an Airmeet community instance, and you can sit down at a table, a, a virtual table, and you don't have to be on video, but you can be on video. And anytime during the day, someone will be at one of those tables to help you with anything related to your event or airmate. No instantly? one else does. Instantly, within 30 seconds. You already answered my next question when, when you said no one else does that. I was going to ask if this is something that people have also repurposed for their own it. efforts. How, I mean, I can tell you HubSpot doesn't do it. I can tell you none of our competitors do it from what I know. Um, yeah, you can go check it out. But yeah, so 24-7 support and that level of type of support. Um, you know, Apple Tools is one of our customers. Um, SaaS company, it's, it's tech more like, you know, engineering type related tooling, but, uh, you know, th that they just were talking to us today and like, yeah, your, your service and support is out of control. How good it is. Um, so yeah. I'm surprised more people don't lean on, on that as a differentiator. It, it does seem to be something mm. people talk about freely when it, when it is the case, but, um, HubSpot did, and we're going to start making a hell of a lot of noise about it. Uh, you can see that on our website soon. It's gonna be like one of the top three reasons, reasons why people choose their meets. So anyway, yeah, so that, I mean, so we help people join together. If you simplify all of our value down to two different words, it's join together. And it's like join together to do what? Well, you know, you decide that. Join together to, uh, you know, gr grow people's knowledge about something. Join together to network. Join together to um, start a new community organization because we have a free product that you can use um, for a lifetime for up to 50 people for every event. So we're just trying to make it easy for people to join together. and get people out of like what the status quo is, which is like, which is zoom, quite frankly, like mm -hmm. one of the things that I'd recommend you do is you start doing this podcast live and we 100%. will do this at Airmate soon where we'll have local um, recording. And like, why wouldn't you just, just do this live with a live audience and then edit it after the fact that you build your community so much faster and so much in a more rich way. If you offer this live as a weekly or bi-weekly thing versus doing it just as a podcast that gets syndicated out to the networks. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell me more. I, I would love to do this. We're doing a lot of, uh, I would say, events in general. So we we do the podcast. We re- repurpose that into uh, you know many different channels and social media and all that stuff. We do a twice a month webinar. Uh, it's called Office Hours. We do twice a year a virtual summit of three days. Oh, wow. I also do a lot of IRL stuff. So like tonight, I'm hosting the Austin Growth Meetup. It's about 10 to 15 people, and it's pretty casual. Uh, we'll do a little bit of like prompted questions, but it's mostly just networking. And I, I'm thinking like there's got to be a way to to consolidate some of this stuff to do like the hybrid event concept is is fascinating to me. We haven't pulled that off yet, but like what we do, maybe podcast, live podcast could work, but definitely the office hours, right? Like where it's somebody giving a workshop and like teaching how to do something. That's something we could host a space at like Capital Factor here in Austin and like have those 15 people from my Austin growth meetup and also produce that online. But like, I don't, I don't know, this is <laughs> a really rambling question, but like, what do we, what are we missing? Um, Cause I, I think we're doing things pretty like typically uh, for like a B2B company. Well, it's, 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 you're missing what HubSpot taught everyone, which is the education of how to do inbound marketing. You're, you're actually doing what we call, we call what you're doing event led growth. You're using events, office hours, webinars, these big summits, uh, the in-person stuff you're doing to grow your brand and business. It's very clear to me. You're doing event-led growth. So that's amazing. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. A lot of businesses don't even take to that level. Now it's like, well, how do we take this idea of event-led growth and simplify it and integrate it more together using one solution? And that's why we built the, the um, event experience cloud. So like, you didn't have to use anything other than us to pull all that off. So like, for example, like, you, you know, the in-person stuff, you could have people check in on your custom you know, mobile app that you could get through AirMeet. And just have all of that together. So then, you know, hey, I'm checking in on AirMeet. I have my profile. I could also use the same profile to attend an event online. It's all one and the same, right? And then for you, you get all the data, right? And it's just all one one integration with AirMeet and your other CRM or marketing automation systems to actually power all this. And you have one bill. You only get charged for attendees. And you can also, you know, stitch together your event-led growth strategy a bit more, right? Because then you can say, well, which audiences are going to which events? I have all that in one spot. I can segment things in Aramid. I can see all that. So for us, it's just an education thing. Like Our stuff is so powerful. Most event marketers only think about events in one way, in person. And they don't think about what you just said. And they don't think about, well, how do I how do I do all this so it's it's working more for us and it's easier for me to do? It's, it's I keep saying, but it's an education thing. Well, I can already, first off, you're, you are a natural salesperson because I'm already like, we should use air meat, um, just so you know, <laughs> but like we, um, I, I'm, I'm already like brainstorming. I'm like, all right. So if we have, let's say 300 people on each office hour session and like some of those are the same, some are different. What would be interesting is if like, say I'm traveling to Boston or New York city, it would be sick if I could see the people who have attended office hours who are in that city. Cause then I feel like I could do like a small group dinner or I could do like a, a ad hoc meetup or something like that. If I had all that data in the right place, I guess I could technically do that with HubSpot and just kind of like, well, I don't even know if I could do that with HubSpot. It would be hard to do. Right. I would have to, it's it would a be a little learning curve. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've audience segmentation built in the product and you could push, push those audiences to HubSpot in a smart list or to the Salesforce. But yeah, I mean, it, it just, the, the future of event tech is so wide open because it's like so it's like it's going to be super disruptive over the next five to 10 years, both on the front end from like, yeah, the AR, VR, God forbid, say metaverse type experiences, mm-hmm. but like that stuff. And then on the back end, it's only going to get better because most event tech don't use any AI. They don't use anything that integrates the event within the larger business strategy. I mean, it's just it's just a massive huge market and huge opportunity to kind of seize. 
What are, what are, are you guys, uh, would you call yourself a event led growth as well? Um, at Aramean, are oh, you like yeah. dog fooding the strategy? Oh yeah. I mean, we do a thing called eventions. We, it's, it's, it's a, it's a live, um, episodic show that we're going to syndicate out to podcasts networks at some, at some time soon, we've done seven or seven episodes coming up soon. Uh, we do we typically quarterly summits. We do a monthly power hour for all of our customers. So a customer centric event. Uh, I mean, we use Airmeet for our support, like literally support lounge, right? Like, so Airmeet is not just events. You could also use it as a quasi community platform, which is super interesting because we have these virtual, you know, rooms and tables and spaces you can set up that aren't just a stage. It's not a stage. Like that's one component, but like we have lounges, stages, virtual rooms and breakout rooms and group meetings. Those five core things in our product. Um, so yeah, I mean, for the most part, you could, you know, some businesses, you know, small businesses don't even use Zoom anymore. They just use Airmeets. Um, but we're not, again, we're not at the level of like one-to-one meetings plus one-to-one meetings, you know, how much innovation can happen there? Yeah, maybe some, but like, you know, Zoom is a meeting company at the end of the day, right? So like, fine. They, they took that market. Teams took that market. You know, we're trying to create um, experiences where people join together in, in larger groups that are um, much more customized, much more, you know, about uh, how do you how do you get someone to remember something? Like, you, you're not going to remember many of your Zoom meetings. You will remember, though, a great event that had great people, great branding, great, uh, you know, ways to participate in the event mm. online or in person. That's what you'll remember versus like how many Zoom meetings do you remember? Like almost none. <laughs> I've forgotten almost all of my Zoom meetings, including all of the, the virtual happy hours that happened during the pandemic. But I will never forget at HubSpot, we did a, a team event and we did an Airbnb experience where we got to learn how to make street tacos from somebody in Mexico City. And I use it all the time. It was interactive. And she was teaching us, oh, like you got to do your tortilla this way. And it was like so nuanced and so personalized that I, I'll never forget that specific event, right? Like that was an experience. You have that's that's the whole key. And like, so we're trying to figure out how do you take those types of experiences and do them online, and how do you do them in person and make the in-person thing easier for the event host to actually pull off and learn from? Because still, like, still, like the in-person piece, we can influence that a bit more through technology. But like you just said, it's, it's all about like the actual person-to-person experience, and that's and that piece. But like from an event standpoint. There is a lot of data that's not either being captured or being used enough when it comes to in-person. It's it's definitely being missed. This is exciting. Um, we're coming up on time, but uh, you, you've already given me a couple great contrarian takes, which I really appreciate. But I wanted to ask you a, a kind of broader level contrarian take question, which is the Peter Thiel question. Um, mm-hmm. What is something that you believe to be true about marketing or business that most people would disagree with you on? Which answer do I want to give? Um, <laughs> marketing. M- marketing is selling. Marketing is selling. There's and no maybe difference. maybe that's not as disagreeable anymore uh, because so many people talk about, like, oh, it's revenue. You got to focus on revenue. It's revenue marketing. It's revenue. It's revenue. Um, like marketing has to report to the CRO. Uh, I'm definitely not advocating for that. Uh, I don't think marketing should report to a CRO per se, unless that CRO was a marketer. 
Um, I guess, anyway, that's that's a whole the digression of a, of a conversation. But um, marketing is about selling. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, it's about selling. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think many people would disagree with you. Um, not me though. our tagline on our website, I think is like turn content into a growth channel, right? Like we're like content can and should sell. Like you can do that. It's totally cool. And uh, your CMO would probably be happy to hear it. (laughs) All right, cool. This has been an awesome conversation. Thank you so much. Um, Where can people find you online? I just LinkedIn, LinkedIn. I mean, I am a little bit active on Twitter, but uh, find me on LinkedIn. If you want that CMO, you know, how how great CMOs unite the C-suite presentation, just let me know. I can send it to you folks on LinkedIn. And yeah, thank you for having me in the uh, the show. It was a lot of fun, Alex, because like the conversation like zigged and zagged, and it wasn't like uh, you know about one topic per se, but they kind of all stitched together. So we, we can never predict where they go. You know, it's an experiment <laughs> in conversation. All right. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah.